Hebrews 8, starting at verse 1. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices and so it is necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that, with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, He has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. This is God's word. Father, we have here wonderful promises. Uh, We've sung already that we want to stand on the promises of your word, and we do indeed thank you that they're trustworthy and true, and more than that, life-changing. So please, would your spirit come change us with these wonderful promises that have found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. His name we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know how many of you are dog lovers or not. I'm not, you know, if I did a straw poll, I could do that. There's much to love about dogs, it seems to me. Uh, enormously fun to have around. Uh, until they're messy, of course. But anyway, uh, overwhelmingly fun things to have around. I always thought it was quite endearing the way that dogs would chase their own shadows. It's sort of funny and, uh, you know, a bit daft. And uh, but I, I read about that this week. And uh, this one article said, that is not funny. If your dog chases his, her shadow, it may be that they've got OCD. And therefore, you should take them to a pet psychologist. Now, <laughs> that's got to be a pretty niche profession, hasn't it? I had no idea that such a thing existed. And then, of course, your, your, your brain goes off. What does that look like? Uh, Rover, come in. <laughs> Take a seat on the leather sofa, Rover. Tell me about your childhood. You know, woof, woof. And on it goes. But shadows are not the real thing. It might be funny in a dog to see a dog chasing a shadow. It would be odd in a human. If a human chased their shadow this evening. That would be an odd thing to do. Or indeed, if, 
if a human preferred a shadow to the real thing. Because the shadows, they're okay, they kind of give you some sense of proportion, but they don't converse with you. Well, it's sort of Peter Pan and that sort of thing. But they don't converse with you. They can't hug you. They're not going to change you as you engage with them. Why would you want a shadow when you can have a person? That would be an obvious trait. You would never do that. You take the person infinitely more valuable. And that's the point in one sense of the book of Hebrews, and certainly when we get to this central section in chapters 7 and 8. All religions are shadows, says the writer. And only Jesus Christ is the reality. Religious systems are shadows. They chase the truth, but never find it. Now, yesterday, last night, uh, um, I was driving back from somewhere, and uh, out of nowhere in the car, my eight-year-old said, Daddy, what is the point of religion? Now, that could be a mildly threatening question uh, to a vicar (laughs) from his son. But, so you always clarify, of course, what do you mean? What is behind that question? Well, Obviously, people should be Christians, good. I was going to be, um, because and I, I get that, because you know God and you have eternity with him if you trust in Jesus, good. Well done. Um, but why do people go for other religions? What is the appeal? Oh, it's interesting. Uh, simple, he's eight. Uh, I think it's because most people would assume that a religion puts them in touch with God somehow, or the supernatural somehow, and they think maybe that a religion will make the world a better place somehow. I thought it was, was quite good off the cuff, actually, to be honest with you. Um, and he was sort of had some engagement and discussion about that. And that's probably, I mean, I, you could do much better than that if you thought about it. But I guess that is at the heart of most religions, some kind of contact with the with a God, if there is one, or, or reality, the transcendence, it may not be personal, the supernatural in some way. And secondly, we'll make the world a better place through this. So most have that sort of, those two things in common. But, says the writer to Hebrews, any religious system is just a shadow. And people will chase the shadows. But you don't need to do that when there is the reality in Jesus Christ. If you're joining us, this whole uh, book, this uh, sermon originally written up now as a letter of Hebrews, was written to Christians then in the first century. They were drifting from Christianity back to Old Testament shadows. Uh, I guess for some it's persecution. Chapter 10 is very clear. They were uh, losing their possessions, losing their homes, losing their freedom, being imprisoned for being Christians. For others, it seems they just liked the ceremony they're like the stuff of religion. Christianity, in one sense, you can do anywhere. We were in a church building, that's fine. We could do it in the park, it's a bit cold, but earlier it would have been fine. You, you can do it anywhere. You don't have to go to a holy place with a holy man. You can worship the Lord Jesus Christ anywhere, meet with him anywhere. And for some in the first century, that's a bit threatening. But what about our ceremonies? What about our elaborate priests? What about our elaborate wafting of smells? We like that. It sort of feels tangible. We get that. And we liked that. And of course, that's still true today. Many will go along to a church or a temple or synagogue or whatever it is for the ceremony. They just like the, you know, the, 
the regularity of it. They've done it since they were children. There's familiar, familiar smells. There's a sort of mystic, there's God there, but it doesn't have an enormous impact upon my life. And some will really like that. And just so, back then. And the writer says, here's your choice. You can know God personally in a way that will save you for eternity, or you can chase shadows. Don't chase the shadows. Let's look at verses 1 to 6, um, which really bring that out uh, with some clarity. Contrast is being drawn here between uh, the tabernacle on earth, come back to that, and the one in heaven. And there's a difference between the shadow and reality. So let me just pick it up, verse uh, 5 in particular. In the Old Testament, they were serving at a sanctuary. That is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warm when he was about to be built the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now, we said this last week. Uh, brief recap. In the Old Testament, there's God's people in Egypt. They're slaves. Uh, um, Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Eventually, the ten plagues, they're rescued. They go to Mount Sinai. They're given laws and instruction. And they're also told to build a tent, a big tent system, a tabernacle. It's like this. Um, and uh, the, the structure was to teach them that sinful man and a holy God can't come together. It is like licking your fingers and shoving them in the electric socket. Don't do that at home or indeed at church. Um, <laughs> You die. You die. A sinful man. And so this whole system is set up to teach that. You've got a, a small room at the back there, the Holy of Holies, about five meters by five meters. No one's allowed in there apart from one man, the high priest, on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. Because you can't come before a sinful, a sinful man can't come before a holy God. The priests are allowed in the holy place. Ordinary people are allowed in the courtyard. Uh, and if you're, if you're not Jewish, you're not allowed in the system at all. The whole thing is teaching is very hard for humans to come before a perfect God. You will die. That's the point of the whole system. And yet, um, um, the writer here says in this little section, it was only ever a copy and a shadow. It's just a hint. It's just a black and white, fuzzy picture. It's a trailer. In heaven, there is the reality. I don't think that means that literally in heaven, you have this sort of structure. But then in heaven is where God dwells intensely. God is everywhere, but it's where his dwelling place. And to come before him, you can't do so unless you're pure perfect morally, and no human being is. So this system was set up in the Old Testament just to teach the people this one point. Simple person coming for a holy God, you may as well run the bath, get your hair dry, turn it on, put it in and jump in there with it. You'll die. You can't do such a thing. Uh, That's the whole point of this system. It's a shadow. But, verse 6, but the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to that one as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, and it's founded on better promises. Okay. <laughs> Complicated. What's a promise? What's a covenant? We get both of these. We get these things. A promise and a covenant. Give you an example. Two, two people, a man and a woman, come together, fall in love, and they make promises. I will love you forever. 
They may do it in song or poetry or however your style. I will love you forever. Now, that's nice. Now, lots of people still choose to have a marriage ceremony and enter the covenant of marriage. Now, what is a covenant? It's a legally binding arrangement. So many, many people up and down the land still choose not just to say, I will love you forever, my daffodil, my frog, my whatever, my bunny. I will love you forever. But they'll take that promise and wrap it in a legal document or legally binding covenant of marriage. Why? Well, just to strengthen resolve sometimes. Because I feel like I love you, I don't. You know, most married people flip and flop between those two feelings uh, on a monthly, weekly, daily, hourly, minutely basis, <laughs> depending upon the state of your marriage. So to wrap that, I feel, I will, I promise, to wrap that up legally gives commitment and therefore security. And if you've ever heard me preach any sort of wedding sermon, marriage or relationships flourish where there is commitment. Commitment is the seatbelt that holds you in marriage when things go wrong. It is when there's commitment that intimacy does best because you can reveal yourself. You've committed to one another now, so you can reveal your secrets without fear, without fear of rejection. You can reveal your insecurities without fear of laughter. In all things, sexually, you can have a sexual relationship and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. And when it's bad, you laugh and say, oh, well, it doesn't really matter because it's not a performance because you've committed legally. So you work through things together, all sorts of problems. So the promise flourishes best in a covenant where there's security. Legal security actually promotes intimacy because you know you're safe. So you can give of yourself. Well, marriage, biblically, is just a hint, a picture uh, uh, of um, what the Lord God has done. So, in the Old Testament, God makes promises, uh, main ones originally to, to Abraham, Genesis 12, but then he wraps up those promises in, in covenant. He legally commits himself. In the Old Testament, you have a covenant, you take an animal, cut it in two, both parties walk before, we don't do that anymore, that would be awkward on a wedding day, but it's legally committing both parties to keep the promise. And so throughout the Old Testament, the promises given to Abraham that there will be a great nation living in the promised land, being blessed by God, are wrapped up in increasingly detailed covenants. Each covenant that the Lord God makes in the Old Testament deepens and adds texture to who he is, what he desires from his people, and how good it is. And they all reach their culmination in the new covenant which has begun with the blood of Jesus Christ. We'll get to that in time. Okay, so promises are wrapped up in covenants. Covenants enact the promises of God in the Bible. So verse 6, the ministry Jesus has received is superior to theirs as the covenant of which his mediator is superior to the old one. It's founded on better promises. Jesus Christ, or God makes better promises through Jesus Christ than ever in the Bible, and he wraps them up in a covenant as well. What are those? We get them in verses uh, 7 to 13, which is a, a quote from a Jeremiah. You can see that in the footnote, Jeremiah 31. It's the longest quote in the whole of the New Testament. It's very wonderful. Three things. 
stressing then why this is so much better than any other religious system, better than the religion of the Old Testament, better than any religion that you could produce today. Three things. I'll write the law within. All will know me equally. I'll forgive their sins forever. I'll write the law within. All will know me equally. I'll forgive their sins forever. Do notice before we even get going how much the emphasis upon God's work. Verse 8, I will make a new covenant. Verse 9, uh, not like the one I made, but uh, verse 10, I will make. Verse 10, I will put my laws. Verse 10, I will be their God. I will, I will, I will. Okay, let's work through these three briefly. Three wonderful promises that are yours if you're a Christian. First, then, I'll write the law within verse 10. Uh, before that, just, to, just jump back to verse 8. Um, what was wrong with the old system? God found fault with the people and said, I need to make a new covenant. What was the problem? Verse 9. Well, this new one will not be like the old covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because what was the problem? They did not remain faithful to my covenant and so therefore I turned away. The problem essentially in the Old Testament was that God gave Moses a covenant, and he wrote it down on tablets of stone. It was written down on... It was external. It was never inside. Never got into the people. Never really changed them. And the difference between external and internal is obviously a very important one. I don't know what you had for lunch today, if you had your traditional Sunday roast. Um, It could have been there on the plate, and you thought, I'll have it external to me. I shall take my potatoes and rub them uh, and the gravy and pour it on my head and the, the chicken I'll just shove in my pockets and um, it looks good, it smells good, it does me no good externally to me. You consume it, delicious, all well and good. Okay. External internal makes an enormous difference. The law then in the Old Testament is external Wonderful laws. Amazing instruction. Gentle, kind, wise, rebuke. Outstanding pattern for life, if you read the Old Testament. But external, outside. And therefore unable to actually change or transform the people. By contrast, New Covenant, this is the wonderful thing. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. What you don't want to do is take the Old Testament and say, I don't like those laws. I want better laws. I can come up with better ways to be a better person. It's no good if it's external to you. And Jesus doesn't come along and says, I've got a better law, a better way of living. No, he says, everything that's written in the Old Testament is brilliant. What you need is new hearts. What we need is to God to change our hearts. So what's being spoken of here is not merely memorization. When God says he'll write laws upon our hearts, it's not that now, if you're a Christian, you can remember things brilliantly, and in the Old Testament they couldn't. It's that we're changed. So think of it this way. Uh, Every so often in our house, open a drawer or find under a sofa uh, a hardened crusty lump of Play-Doh. 
And you get it, and it is basically a, you know, a rock, it's a stone, you can bang it against things, nothing's going to happen. You've got all these wonderful moulds in the house of dinosaurs and racing cars, and you can try and push it in, but nothing's going to happen. It's just like a lump of rock. But of course, if you take the Play-Doh and are patient enough, and just, you know, obviously mummy or daddy has to do it, no one else has patience enough for such a thing. <laughs> but if you're patient enough with it, and just move it around in your hands enough, of course, it softens. It's back to its old substance again. Chuck a bit of water in. Oh, you've got something you can mould, something you can squish. You can put it in your fingers and, you know, that wonderful way it does. You can take your moulds of dinosaurs, of cars, and push it in. Take the mould off. Oh, look, brilliant. And that's the sense that is being spoken of here. When God says he'll write the laws upon our hearts... It is, if you put it together with other biblical pictures, that his spirit will come and change our hearts, soften them, no longer hard, so the law just bounces off. But now the same laws that Moses had, we read them, we read the book of Proverbs or something like that, and you think, that's brilliant, and I want to live that way. I desire to live that way. I want to be changed. I want to be molded. I want to be shaped by the Word of God in a way that we never, never thought that before. Verse 10, I will be, the second half of it, I will be their God and they will be my people. <clears throat> now, in one sense, that's the slogan you get throughout the Bible. God's promise, I'll be, my, I'll be their God, they will be my people. But every time it gets bigger and bigger, or greater definition and depth is added to that, uh, with every change of covenant, with every promise uh, that's added. So when God says to the Christian, you are mine, and I own you, the Christian says, that's great. I'm not threatened by that because you've changed my heart within and I want to be shaped by your word, by your promises to become more like Jesus Christ. That is great, says the Christian. Not threatening because we know that covenant and wrapping promises up in legal language is good. It's the best place to flourish with intimacy so I will write the law within. He says, verse 10. That's the first promise of the, the new covenant. Now, as with all of these, we have it in part now. If you're a Christian, you know that. You know that in part. Not perfectly. Do you do God's will perfectly if you're a Christian? Let me answer that for you. You do not. No, not, not perfectly consummated until heaven. But the desire is there now in a way it never was before. I'll write the law within. Uh, secondly, all will know me equally. Verse 11. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or brother. I don't think that means in context that you should issue with me with my P45 and say we don't need you anymore, although you'll feel free. But um, because the rest of the New Testament is very clear, there is a role to... Uh, set apart some, free them up from doing other professions so they can give all their time to, uh, to teaching the Bible. That's a, that's a you know, New Testament position. Lots of people should be doing that, so the Bible suggests. The emphasis here is on all will know me. Unmediated, 
knowledge of God. Every believer can approach the living God with confidence. doesn't need to go through anyone else. Every Christian can, uh, you know, tonight, tomorrow morning, pick up their Bible, open their Bible, read it and think, God has spoken to me. I didn't need anyone to tell me what that meant. It's very obvious. God has spoken to me. And I'm thrilled with that promise. I'm rebuked by that challenge, whatever it may be. Every Christian knows that. All will know me. So, of course, one way of assessing if you're a New Testament Christian, you're genuinely one, is, would you say, I know the Lord. He speaks to me in his word. And I speak to him. I know him. He knows me. And it is a delight. Those are the words of a Christian. And, of course, um, uh, there's radical equality here. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. The least of the greatest. Now, that is a rare thing. Because every culture has its hierarchies of different kinds. I saw, caught up with a friend of mine from um, Theological College the other day. Uh, he works in Brixton Prison. He's the chaplain in Brixton Prison. And uh, I was asking him about the, um, who's in charge, uh, not the wardens, as, as it were, but, you know, the, the ranking of, uh, of criminals is oh, very clear. Uh, you, at the, number one, you have, at the top of the tree, you have the armed robbers, because they're normally the organized crime and the crime lords. So you have the armed robbers, then the drug dealers. So the armed robbers look down on the drug dealers. The drug dealers look down on the murderers. The, uh, the murderers look down upon the rapists. The rapists look down upon the pedophiles, and they're stuffed. There are a few ranks in between. It's, it's, every prison's the same. Always works like that. Every culture has its hierarchy. I am more important than him and more important than her. But here, a radical equality. All will know me, from the least to the greatest. Uh, you know, the story is told of the, uh, the Duke of Wellington visiting a small country church not long after he'd won the Battle of Waterloo. And if you know your history, uh, after the Battle of Waterloo, Wellington is the most famous man in the world. You can go to Apsley House, you know, three minutes walk, that way, uh, and just on um, uh, Hyde Park Corner, go to Apsley House, uh, where he lived, one of his houses, obviously, uh, number one London, that's not a bad address, is it? Um, go to Apsley House, and you just walk around, and it's just stuffed full of treasure that he was given after he won the Battle of Waterloo. Thank you from Crown Prince Frederick, thank you from Emperor Lillard, every, every ruler in the world fated him. He was the most famous person in the world, and a military hero. You, you can't roll them. I don't know what that would be. David Beckham, you know, um, you know, unique in how adored and revered he was. Anyway, he went to this little local country church, and time came for communion uh, tradition there. They go up to the communion rail. They knelt off their hands. So Wellington goes up, kneels, offers his hands, and uh, an old guy, you know, not um, a member of the congregation, shuffles up and sits, kneels down next to him and offers his hands. And apparently the vicar sort of looked on with horror, went over to this old guy and said, it's the Duke of Wellington. Just stand up over there and wait till he's done. And uh, uh, Wellington heard this, hold the girl, uh, grabbed hold of the guy's hand, held him down so he couldn't move, and said, stay where you are. All are equal in this place. Now, that's good theology, I hope that story is true. <laughs> but it's certainly good theology. 
I may be the most famous man in the world and you may be a nobody in the back end of nowhere, but all are equal here. Now, you may take that for granted if you're a Christian, but that is stunning and very different from religious systems. See, any religious system, in one sense, engenders uh, a sense of superiority and separation. So superiority, we're better than you, we have better rules, we have better behavior, we have better um, gods than you, and they look down upon others. We must separate. It doesn't matter if we're the uh, Roma of Sheffield all over the news this week, or the, the Jews of Golders Green, or Muslims in, in uh, West Ham. It doesn't matter. We, we, we're going to get in our enclave and separate off, and the media will caricature one of us so we can caricature one another that's what religion does. It often divides and separates. But of course, the Christian is one who says, I deserve nothing from God. God has done something extraordinary in me. I pray that he would do the same for you, because I'm no better than you. In many ways, I'm worse. But I long for that. There can be no superiority can be no looking down the nose if you're a Christian. That's one of the things that the, uh, the sort of the passionate secularist can't quite get, because, you know, a classic sort of Richard Dawkins type figure has to look down upon the person of faith as a fool, as a bigot, as silly ideas. The Christian can never do that towards, to, to anyone. They know they're all are equal when they come before Jesus Christ. The only difference between them and someone perhaps who isn't a Christian is God has done something wonderful in them. It's a radical equality. I'll know the law within. All will know me equally. Third and last, I will forgive sins forever. Verse 12. Here is the basis for which the other promises come. You see it, verse 12, four, because. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll write the law within. All will know me equally. Four, because I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Wonderful. I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Of course, in the Old Testament, you get sacrifices for sin, but we'll see next time, they were never able to perfect someone. They were never able to make them morally pure. You have a sacrifice for sin, but in that model, you still couldn't walk into the throne room of God. You were never good enough for that. This is very different, a completely different order. What a lovely picture, that the Lord will remember sins no more. That's so unlike you and me, isn't it? I spent much of the last couple of weeks profoundly annoyed uh, with a friend. Uh, it's been a pretty rough month uh, in our family, various things going on. And uh, a friend, good friend in many ways, has not been in contact until my wife sent him a, a very feisty email. Uh, and he did get in contact after that. And I was pretty annoyed with him. Because I'm an idiot, not only was I annoyed for this... But in my head, I started to replay the tape of any other times I could remember him potentially letting me down and failing me in the past. Oh, and I found a number. Because he's a human. And I hadn't held those things against him, but as soon as he did one thing wrong now, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, that you did before. And, uh, you know, it's a very unflattering example, but I've had to take myself very much in hand and be deliberate and decide to forgive. The Lord doesn't remember. Isn't that great? 
that he today, tonight, looks down and says, Matt Fuller has mucked up again. But it's a metaphor. We'll come to him. But he doesn't drag up the sins of the past because they're gone. They're washed away. They're paid for. We'll see next time. Uh, It is through the work of Jesus Christ, particularly his blood, that these sins are swept away. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. uh, The new covenant is inaugurated by the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, These chapters run very much together and and hold together. That's what it is that allows the Lord to remember sins no more. It is as if the Lord has a massive ledger of uh, your sins and mine. It's a whopping great book, you know, a sort of thing that, you know, they'd have in the library at Hogwarts, a big, dusty, leather-bound, with buckles book of all the things we've ever done wrong, and it's chock-a-block full of stuff, the minor and the not-so-minor, hugely embarrassing. But if you're a Christian, it's been cleansed. So God opens it and says, yeah, what, was it that, what was it that Matt Fuller did wrong? There's lots of things here, but whenever I look at them, there's a big red stamp over all of them saying, paid, 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 paid. So I can't actually remember what they are. Now, God is not an amnesiac. Don't take it too, push it too far. But no longer remembered. You'll be handed the file of your sins. And God says, I can't remember anything you've done wrong. Because all has been paid for by the death of Jesus Christ in your place, by his blood. Wonderful. I'll forgive sins forever. Gone. God won't drag up the things of the past. He can't. They're washed away, covered by the work of Jesus Christ. So why go back to the shadow? Uh, The reality has these promises. I'll write the law within. All will know me equally. I'll forgive their sins forever. That's what's better about the new covenant, those three. That's the reality. Why would you go through the shadows or go back to the shadows? So my son's question, Daddy, what is the point of religion? Well... Well, people like to think they know something of God. But the God of shadows doesn't change you. Through Jesus Christ, the blood of the new covenant, you can know God. Oh, there's commitment there, but there's intimacy. There's profound change in your life as he writes the law within There is a radical equality that allows you to relate to people in a completely different way. And you know that everything is paid for. But he'll change you. And so some people will never come to Jesus Christ. They'll prefer religion. Because it just keeps the shadow God in the shadows and has no impact. Jesus Christ, the true and living God, he'll bind himself to you in covenant. He'll change you. But why wouldn't you want that when you're so good? Let's pray together.
Our loving Heavenly Father, these are wonderful promises. And no matter how many times we've heard them or been aware of them, would you, would your spirit continue to drive them deeper into us? So we're not those who foolishly turn from Jesus Christ to the shadows. We aren't those who will stay in the shadows rather than coming to the reality in Jesus Christ. But we would realize how good it is to have a God who binds himself to us in Jesus Christ, who has promised to love us and will not let us go because of these wonderful promises secured by the covenant in Jesus' blood. We want to thank you and praise you in his great name. Amen.